by kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? there welcome to episode number 71 of the love that album podcast it's 2015 january 2015 as i'm recording this so happy new year to uh, all you listeners out there or both of you listeners out there it's going to be an exciting year for the podcast i'm sure uh, some great new albums to discuss and a new segment which i'll uh, talk about in a little while if this is the first time that you're listening to the show welcome on board happy to uh, have any new listeners out there my name is Morris, and what I like to do on this program is invite a rotating series of co-hosts to come on and discuss great album, or on the very odd occasion, maybe talk a little bit about the career of a particular artist. But mostly the format is that we pick an album, or maybe a good couple of albums, and discuss that in the same sort of way that a lot of film podcasts do out there. When I started this show, there didn't appear to be anything out there that was doing this. There's a couple of uh, other great album discussion podcasts out there now. But uh, anyway, Love That Album is uh, what I do. I've been doing this for the last three and a half years. And um, it started out generally as being once every couple of weeks. Now I do it once a month with a um, another show in the month that's hosted by a fine fellow, Eric Peterson, where he covers compilation albums. I don't tend to do compilations on the main show. So when he came up with that suggestion to basically keep some Love That Album content going twice a month, I thought that was a fine, wonderful suggestion. So basically you get some Love That Album in one form or another twice a month. Uh, but once a month each of the compilation series and of the main show. So if you've heard all that before, then I apologize for wasting your time. But uh, anyway, so look, on with the show. And this time around, I have a new co-host, someone who's never been on the program before. If you're a listener to the all-time top 10 podcast hosted by Ben Eisen, then this man will be no stranger to you. He is, and I'm sorry I have to show favoritism here, but he is my favorite of all the co-hosts on the all-time top 10 podcast. I'm talking about the one, the only, Mr. David Daskal. Uh, good, well, it's afternoon for you, isn't it, David? So um, good afternoon, Dave. Good morning to you. Good afternoon to you. And if you're listening, of this at three in the morning good morning to you as well i'm i'm thrilled to be on your show this is my first international program and it's it's awesome to hear an australian say my say my name with the australian <laughs> accent uh, i'm deeply flattered and and i have to admit blushing based on your statement there um all-time top 10 for those who don't know is uh ben eisen is a fellow out of wisconsin and we get together him and i once every three months but he does his bro- broadcast every week Mm. Um, we pick a theme together that we can agree on and count down the top 10 best, maybe cheesy love songs of all time or songs that make you cry or songs that have parentheses in the title or the top 10 of 2014, which we actually just recorded, uh, last weekend. So that should be out 
in a, in a couple of weeks or if this broadcast comes out later this month, um, you can find it at alltimetop10.podomatic.com. Mm. P-O-D-O-M-A-T-I-C. It's free to stream, free to download. And you can also like the Facebook page too. Just type in All Time Top 10 and you should find it. Indeed. So we've, we've actually had, we've actually had uh, Ben on uh, this program a couple of times, although it's been uh, way too long since I've had him back. I think we've um, had a uh, discussion about discussing uh, a Fountains of Wayne album, I think the second one, Utopia Parkway. So that's going to be coming up somewhere within about two, three, four months, I think, down the track. So just oh, to organise the timing on that. And I've, I've certainly um, uh, been honoured to uh, be on the all-time top ten podcast as well. And, nice. Uh, what, what, uh, what did you count down? Uh, so let's. I think the first time, I think it was the first time, uh, he was, he'd gone and uh, declared it uh, Beatles month. So I, I was um, on, uh, I think, I can't remember if this is my suggestion or his, but we did all-time top 10 Beatles covers. And considering that there are thousands of Beatles covers out there, it was uh, quite... It was a very easy list for you to come up with. It was a very easy list. And um, <laughs> if, if, you haven't, if you haven't heard the show yet, I won't spoil it, but I, I don't know whether Ben liked this or not, but I did come up Please with three different covers of the same song, but they were all very broad and all very worthy of being included in an all-time top ten. So uh, three covers of the one song, but they, they sounded so different, I thought it was a, a valid way to go. And we only had one steal, um, and it was Ben stealing off me. Uh, what else have we done? Top ten songs about death. and <laughs> we, we actually even included a, a, a couple of humorous ones in there, so, you know, death can be funny. Uh, it can and, um, and all those are backlogged too. Uh, the website escapes me, but you can you can find him on All Time Top Ten Automatic uh, Mixcloud, I think. Uh, all Time Top Ten dot Mixcloud dot com, I think. Thank you very much. And what else? We I think ah uh, there was uh, there's four, but I think the only other one I remember was the last one that we did where we did uh, Top Ten Wilco songs. So oh, um, fantastic! I love that you have such a, a versatile range um i've learned i've learned a lot from you listening to your your episodes with white horse mm. and um robert ellis the texas singer right. song and right. both artists i ne- would never have even heard of in- until coming to your program so oh, well thank you very much the um and, and the nice thing is that uh, both of those um both of those albums were suggestions from my co-hosts on the day so you know i'm not just sort of going through what i know i'm relying on the wonderful people out there in the community who will say have you ever thought about this have you ever heard this artist and i'll listen to it and think right let's talk about that that's an absolutely wonderful recording so um, absolutely today is a joint effort though we had to find it we had to find an artist that morris actually liked Um, (laughs) i was i was being difficult about it wasn't i dave you were, but I was already pre- I was already prefaced with the fact that you your taste in music is very particular. So we, we won't mention <laughs> the albums I suggested because the artists will become under fire. Um, but I, I, I knew I was bound to like something that you like. So I just I just submitted the reins and said, you know what, you, you tell me what you want to do and then let's pick an album. So that was I think that that was a fairly easy process. So I'm excited about what we're doing today. Well, well, look, before we go any further, let's actually um, mention what it is that we're going to be uh, talking about on the show today. So we're going to be talking about the second album by uh, Joe Jackson and the Joe Jackson Band, as uh, they came to be known, although my views had uh, several other bands that he's put together, so it's not exactly that imaginatively titled. But anyway, the second album from Joe Jackson uh, from 
October 1979 called I'm the Man. Uh, and we'll sort of discuss the background and the band members and uh, what led to that album being recorded and all other sorts of uh, interesting tidbits and the music itself because that's really ostensibly what we're here to talk about. So uh, we'll talk a little. Uh, we'll talk a lot about that uh, a little bit later on in the show. Now I mentioned earlier on that um, we're going to be uh, uh, that, that you know every month as well as doing the uh, the main Love That Album program. I also have featured a special covering uh, compilation albums from uh, Eric Peterson, a.k.a. Eric Reanimator. And also, if this is your first time listening, Eric does a short segment for the main show called An Album I Love. And this time around, what's he going to be covering? He's going to be covering an album from 1994 by an ex-Minuteman bass player. And certainly, I know Ben Eisen would be a fan, being a, a, a bassist, and I'm sure he's mentioned this guy before. This is Mike Watt and his uh, 1994 album, Ball Hog or Tugboat, which um, I think was the first album that uh, Mike covered after his second band. I don't remember who they were, but it was the Minutemen and another band. Uh, anyway, so on this album, uh, it has a cast of thousands, and the one that I remember, uh, Dave Grohl, uh, Petra Hayden, who's someone I really, really love, and Nels Klein, who is uh, the... Um, uh, guitar player or one of the guitar players currently in Wilco and if you'd heard his style of jazz playing before you wouldn't necessarily think that Nels Klein and Wilco were a, an obvious fit but they've somehow made it work so anyway uh, yeah uh, later on in the show we'll be hearing from uh, Eric talking about uh, Mike Watts uh, ball hog I or tugboat I choose tugboat over bullfrog. Ball, ball hog ball hog all right well in that case I'll, I'll have to be counter to that sir and I'll choose ball hog I wonder how you'd play that game, ball hog or yeah, tugboat. I, uh, I don't know if it involves a coin, an Australian coin toss. <laughs> right, yeah, well, absolutely. I think uh, we, uh, we used to have a game here uh, that was called two-up. So uh, maybe they chose coins that had um, ball hogs or tugboats on the other side. Um, uh, the all-time top ten knows a lot about uh, toy tosses, don't they? They do. That's that's what determines who goes first. That's right. But fortunately, because we, we just lob right into it, we don't have to have a toy cost for this on the show. Yeah, there's no stress involved in this particular program. It's very, 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 very relaxed. Very, very relaxed. Um, okay, so Eric's segment, that'll be on in a short while. And now, what else? Oh, yeah, so uh, this year, I'm aiming at having a new segment for the show and it just sort of came to my mind maybe about a week or so ago i've already made reference to it on the facebook site but uh, for those of you who aren't on the facebook site and um or, or may have not actually read that uh note that i posted up it's simply this actually no what i'll do I'll, i might mention this segment a little bit later on so no i won't talk about it just yet you'll have to keep listening to find out what <laughs> it is alarm. i'm gonna i'm gonna stretch it out i'm gonna stretch it out a little bit uh, but hopefully you still you don't tune out of the show so you, you get to find out what it is what i will do now though is something that i don't get to usually do on the program and that is read out emails because i don't actually get many emails and i've actually got two this time around um, oh my goodness! I'm 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 just I'm completely beside myself. So uh, all right, here's the first one. This is from a fellow called Greg, and I can't pronounce his surname. 
so we'll just call him Greg H, which is a little bit unusual for me because people always say that they can't pronounce my surname, and I try to make a, a decent effort to pronounce people's surnames. Also, if people look at your name, they, they would think that they would call you Maurice, like Steve Miller band calling you Maurice, but right. it's not. Well, no, it, it, that's, well, I mean, look, if people are going to call me Maurice, well, then, you know, I, I do actually have a couple of people at work who say, call me the gangster, you know, so I, I guess, you know, some people do call me Maurice, but um, that would be, yeah, that's not how I go. That's not how we roll. But this we're schooling these Americans. Oh, sorry? I said we're schooling these Americans. We've got to do that. We have to do that. And all the other international listeners. Uh, so what we're going to do is, uh, I'm going to read, anyway, this first email from uh, Greg H. Um, Greg, if you uh, want to um, tell me actually how your uh, surname is pronounced, I'd love it to have you on the show and um, have you, uh, or send more correspondence. Anyway, look, what he said was, I've just finished listening to your Spilt Milk podcast and loved it. I was an occasional listener before, but that Spilt Milk is a favorite album, so I had to listen. I had to listen to it alone because my wife doesn't understand the hardcore nerd worship people have for that album. Anyway, you and your guests were talking track by track, and when you got to Russian Hill, there was talk that there was no direct influence, and I wanted to drop a line to say I hear more than a strong whiff of Nick Drake in Russian Hill, particularly the feathered guitar strumming brings to mind Riverman. Speaking of hardcore nerd worship, have you seen this? And he goes and points out a link to a podcast called Hollywood Gauntlet. Um, I'll talk about that in a second. Thanks for a great show, Greg H. Actually, that's how he's gone and signed himself off as Greg H. But I know his surname because he's actually since joined and gone and joined the, uh, uh, the Facebook page for the group. Many thanks for that, Greg. Um, so yeah, just yeah. to quickly go over that, thank you very, very much. Um, it's, it's always a thrill to know that there's someone new who's listening to the show and particularly that there's a, a given episode or album that resonates with them. Um, you know, well, up until you mentioned that Nick Drake reference, that would never have occurred to me, but listening back to the song, I completely get that. Um, certainly if, if the song had been played more finger-picking style, then I guess I might have come to that same conclusion myself. But um, certainly the, 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 that sort of G chord thing that he uses in that song, I think it's a G chord, um, of sort, does sound very Nick Drake-ish, and I can completely hear Nick Drake singing that song. Was, is Spilt Milk an album that you're familiar with by Jellyfish Dave? I'm not familiar, but I'm thrilled that Greg H. wrote into you because I'm a humongous fan of Nick Drake, and Riverman is in my top three or four favorite songs of his, so I'll actually listen to that album and get acquainted and well, and, they've, uh, they've, uh, track. Jellyfish um, were like a, you know, the band that should have been huge, but unfortunately weren't from the early 90s. And you know, I saw Jellyfish, I believe, in Lollapalooza 93. I think oh, they were on nice. that tour. It was well, with... Uh, uh, Unless I'm confusing them with Fishbone, but I definitely have seen Jellyfish once in my life. Right. Well, um, they they're a band that sort of like loom large in in uh, my listening pleasure because uh, if you've anyone who's listened to this show knows I'm a big power pop fan, but they sort of went beyond the whole power pop tag. Uh, they they were as I described in the show. We we spoke about that they uh, frequently sort of described as a cross between Queen, the big. Uh, pompous sound of Queen and 
Beach Boys harmonies, but that second mm. album, and as it turned out to be, unfortunately, their final album, Spilt Milk, there's so much more going on there, and hence that Nick Drake reference. Uh, I wonder if they were crying over that Spilt Milk. Oh, no, 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 I'm not going to go there. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I, w- I would urge you, urge you to go check out um, either of their two albums. The first one was called Belly Button, and their two albums have just been, I think, only this week been re-released with uh, a bonus CD of demo tracks, songs that didn't make it to the album. Remasters kind of bring up the sharpness, the quality of tracks. So, I mean, there's something about an original track, per se, the album we're going to discuss today on LP. And then when you hear remastered all of the, the new modern, you know, things that they would have probably done today to the production of the album. Well, look, you know, the, the fact is both of these albums are, I think, audio engineers delights. They, uh, the sound quality in these records is fantastic to begin with. So I'd be interested to see how they've actually gone and improved on it. Uh, there, there was so much care and attention taken to these albums. And I, as we even discussed in that podcast, uh, there's... Um, there's just so much going on in the mix. You listen to uh, little... It's like they had, especially on the second album, they had access to a musical instrument store and they thought, right, oh, why don't we use this instrument here for like 10 seconds and you hear it in the mix, but it never sounds gratuitous. And mm-hmm. just, as I said, so much care and attention is taken to how they recorded this. So um, if they say it's the sound quality is improved... I've no reason to doubt them, but I'm just sort of wondering how they did it, given that the album sounded so good in the first place. Sure. Anyway, uh, so I searched that out. Spilt Milk or Belly Button by Jellyfish with bonus CDs of an extra thousand bonus demo tracks and the like. Uh, So the second uh, email that I have here is from a fellow who's been for a while on the Facebook page, and he's even been a guest on the second podcast I'm associated with called See Here. Uh, his name is Hank Hellman, and he's gone and sent in in response to the fact that um, the last couple of shows from last year were end-of-year favourite albums of the year, and he's gone and chimed in with his own favourite. So uh, he says, Hi, Morris. Listen to both the Love That Album year-end spectaculars. Good times. Got some very intriguing recommendations to check out. It was a blast listening to Max's selections. And I should just sort of point out, if you haven't heard the show, Yet uh, Max is my nearly 17-year-old son who uh, chimed in with his favourite heavy metal uh, (laughs) selections for the year. Um, uh, So he says, uh, even though I will never listen to any of those bands voluntarily, well, that's not entirely true. I will check out that Royal Blood album. Anyway, it's always a treat to listen to somebody passionately talking about music they love, even if it's not your thing. I meant to send in my best of list, but I never got round to it. I'm a lazy bastard. I know instead I present you with this email. It's a little long, so feel free to abbreviate at will. There will be no abbreviation here, Hank. I love reading out long letters. A new Leonard Cohen album, Popular Problems, came out last year, and whenever that's the case, it's pretty much guaranteed a place on my most listened to list of that year. This is a solid Cohen album. Perhaps the time of great masterpieces is behind him, and that's okay with me. He's delivered his fair share. If you're a Cohen fan, you'll like this. All his literary acumen is still in full effect. Check out this line. I know the burden's heavy as you wheel it through the night. Some people say it's empty, but that don't make it light. Man's got away with words. A couple of tracks to check out. Did I ever love you? 
or you got me singing. Lydia Lovelace, Somewhere Else. Eric talked about this album on your show, and I don't have much more to add. It's got some twang and some rock and roll attitude and a whole lot of raw emotion. Highly recommended. Check out her cover of They Don't Know. It's not the best song on the album, but it's kind of the perfect last track. Sturgill Simpson, Meta Modern Sounds in Country Music. Actually, I have spoken with you about this one, uh, uh, Hank, and um, I will be checking that one out. Uh, Sturgill Simpson's Meta Modern Sounds in Country Music. You've got to have some balls going with a title like that. Almost like the replacements naming an album, Let It Be. Hmm. That's, that's uh, true. Anyway, this is some kick-ass balls outlaw country with a bit of psychedelia and drug-soaked lyrics thrown in for good measure. First time I ever heard this band was when I took a chance and went to see them live. Fucking hell, what a live band. The record doesn't really do the live performance justice, but it's still a pretty damn great record. Check out Turtles All The Way Down. The last one I want to mention is a compilation that's a little unusual in that it's a collection of tracks by all sorts of different artists. What they have in common is that guitar legend Dwayne Allman played on them. It's a seven CD set called Sky Dog, the Dwayne Allman Retrospective. It's got a lot of Allman brothers in various guises, obviously. It's got all the amazing tracks he made famous on such songs as Layla, uh, Wilson Pickett's version of Hey Jude, Aretha doing The Wait, etc. There's a whole lot of tracks of various soul and rock acts that he sat in on as a session musician at the Muscle Shoals Studios. So much great music on here, a lot of which I'd never heard before. The last week or two, I've had to listen to the Ronnie Hawkins version of Will the Circle Be Unbroken at least once a day. That's it. Thank you for listening to all my troubles. Pardon me, I've got someone to kill. Not really. Cheers, Hank. Thanks yeah, for Hank. Thank Woo. you so much for that, Hank. Um, yeah, that look, that Sky Dog box set was one uh, box set I'd had my eyes on until I saw how much it was going for. But um, like you, I am a big Dwayne Allman fan, big Allman Brothers fan, and I think this time last year I'd been to see the Muscle Shoals documentary. Is that? Have you seen that film, Dave? Have, have you I, heard I, 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 the last documentary I saw was a History of the Eagles, and that was a, almost two years ago. So right. I'm, I'm, as, as much as I'm involved in the industry, I don't do a whole lot of watch of uh, a whole lot of watching of television or, or documentaries. But uh, I have a message for Hank that two of the artists he mentioned are uh, mentioned in the all-time top ten show. We actually did a, a three-way, not non-sexual three-way between Ben, <laughs> Austin, uh, Shannon Hurley, who is a, an often guest of his, and myself. And two of the artists he mentioned are covered on, so he'll like he'll, he'll definitely like their lists. Uh, that's on on which episode was that? It's going to be the top 10 of 2014. Uh, I'm, I'm imagining by the time that this, this podcast comes out, that podcast will be out. So we recorded it last week. I think it's out in two weeks from, from last week's date. So Excellent. somewhere beginning of February, I think. Excellent. And actually, so while, while you mentioned the Eagles there, uh, uh, forgive me how rude I am. I didn't get around to actually saying so. Besides all-time top 10, when you're doing music, what do you do? Well, as far as music is concerned, I, I front an Eagles tribute band. I'm the microphonist. And what that means is I'm, I'm the front man, the lead singer, but I don't like those connotations. I like to see everybody in the band is equal. And an Eagles tribute band versus a cover band, uh, a cover band can stylistically do whatever they want to, to butcher people's songs, but a tribute band, and that's fine. I don't have any issue with that. But a tribute band will, will do tracks the way that you hear them on the album to the T. 
right. as far as vocal nuances, exact guitar licks, exact drum fills. And we perform in Los Angeles currently, and uh, we'll, we'll be launching a website in a couple of weeks. You'll be able to go to bestofmylove.net and see what we're all about. We have SoundCloud, Facebook, and Twitter page. And, uh, yeah. How, uh, how, I, how, often you guys, how, how often do you guys play? We can play anywhere from once a month to a couple times a week. It just varies. We don't have any shows currently planned as we're looking to set up a tour with a booking agency soon. So of nice. the Pacific Northwest, uh, upper Northern California, and perhaps Arizona. But we, we've been playing Schooner at Sunset down in Sunset Beach in Orange County and uh, Paladinos in Reseda recently. We just did the Viper Room, a charity concert event in West Hollywood, and the Troubadour last august as well so we play we play everywhere from like big clubs to small clubs and um, just have a really good time so you'll hear don henley come out of my throat randy meisner and Bernie have, Lepp. have you ever had any uh, messages from don henley or glenn fry or you know anyone saying um nice job guys when down in california we must come and um uh, watch you play i think that's that sounds very dreamlike uh i don't know if that <laughs> ever occur uh, no one, no one who those guys are, but uh, we we recently formed in in the summer of 2013 and started playing out in smaller venues in the fall. So I I've met a, a handful of people who are uh, a step away from Joe Walsh or have seen Joe Walsh, or they go to his fundraiser cruise event that he does once a year, or um, a kid that went to school with Glenn Fry's kids or played golf with Glenn Fry. So we're very like half degree separated from Eagles, and they're on tour right now, if I'm not mistaken. So I wouldn't be surprised if they walked into a venue knowing when, when we were playing. And I, would be, I wouldn't be nervous about anybody watching us but Glenn Fry. Uh, I think the others would be pretty chill. But, I mean, we do it confidently, and we're, we're doing it to keep, keep the awareness alive. We're, there's a lot of Eagles tribute bands out there. I totally know that. But we provide a nice eclectic show. Uh, engage the audience. I'm very much a showman. I don't just stand there and, and sing. And we we move about and give it a different youthful approach than some of the some of the older guys that have been out there doing this for a while. Nice. So we're we're premier, and we're called Best of My Love. And you can find us uh, on Facebook.com/slash Best of My Love Eagles Tribute to like us, and we simply just post the pertinent information like when our next show is and maybe some fun stuff. But we don't inundate. Excellent. All right, so if you're in the uh, Los Angeles area listening to this, get out and see the guys. Or if you're from um, some other part of the States, fly in and see the guys. <laughs> Best of my love. Um, all right, okay, so I think, uh, okay, what we'll do in a moment is go to uh, hear Eric's album I love segment uh, should just make quick mention so you heard those uh, couple of emails there if you wish to get in contact with the show love to hear from you uh, you can email me at rrrkitchen that's all one word three r's rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au um, if that's uh, not kitchen it's rr no no not, not as in the count not as in no no as in the letter r so triple r uh, but not not the word triple. This is getting confusing. Kitchen at yahoo.com.au. Uh, if you've downloaded the show through um, iTunes, then um, that's one way of doing it, obviously. But you can also uh, download it in the future if you want another method, because you like versatility, from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or lovethatalbum.podbean, that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. 
once again through the aforementioned iTunes. And uh, you can join the Facebook group uh, that I mentioned about before, facebook.com forward slash love. Oh, so no, hang on, get, should get that right, shouldn't I? For love it album. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move Mr. Tongue and Mr. Lips together. Uh, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash love that album or one word and uh, we get people up there who like to talk about um, albums that they're digging on or gigs that they've gone to anything that you want to contribute musically it's all good please join in the fun all right so before we go talking about joe jackson's album i'm the man we'll go to eric reanimators segment an album i love and as i mentioned before he's going to be talking about mike watt's album from 1994 ball hog or tugboat uh so we'll be back in a few minutes talking some joe jackson you've got david daskell over there and morris over here uh you're listening to love that album speak shortly take it away eric the orchestra leader now it's time for an album i love with Eric Reanimator. A la dee dee, a one, two, three, Eric the Reanimator. album from former Minutemen and Firehose bassist, songwriter and vocalist Mike Watt. It's called Ball Hog or Tugboat. This is one of those records that came out in the 90s that I picked up because I read about it or heard about it somewhere. I wasn't really familiar with Mike Watt, even though my best friend was a huge fan of Firehose. I maybe heard a song or two, and but his music had never really connected with me. For some reason I picked up this album. Maybe it was the fact that Eddie Vedder sings on one of the songs. Maybe it's the fact that Rollins was on it. But it's something that stuck with me all these years. You know, I'm sure a lot of us go through a lot of records and over the years have sold off, traded away or given away plenty of records that nowadays we wish maybe we held on to. And then there's some that stick in our collections for who knows why. Maybe we don't listen to them all that often. Maybe we've forgotten about them. And in the case of Ball Hog or Tugboat, I'm glad that I held on to the record. Let's take a listen and see what it has to offer.
a dude had the attitude But the 70s had him spaced Up in Hollywood Maybe then he could find a reason for his base Turned his Volkswagen a spiel wagon Hong Kong Cafe New Year show Drove up from Pedro From Pedro What drove? Decided to come alive Walked out the store And stared today right in the eye Said what you want with us Cause we came to deal with you Came to work with our hands Came to think things through this record special is all the guest stars that are on it. People like Jay Maskus from Dinosaur Jr., the Kirkwood Brothers from The Meat Puppets, several members of Nirvana and the Screaming Trees pop up along with members of Jane's Addiction. <clears throat> Petra Hayden shows up along with uh, Dave Perner from Soul Asylum. There's um, Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth and uh, you know the list goes on and on. I uh, kind of referred to this as a wrestling record as if everybody was some kind of tag team coming in to fight for their side or for their song. The songs themselves are uh, maybe a little more reflective and a little softer than most of what Watt had done before. There are a couple of covers. Um, there is a Funkadelic cover, there's a uh, Sonic Youth cover, and there's a cover of the Kinman Brothers Big Train, which we're going to hear here at the end of this segment. And uh, yeah, it's a great record. I'm, I'm having a great time rediscovering it. This is definitely a record that I would like to see the Dig Me Out podcast cover at some point. Um, if you hear one song that doesn't work for you, maybe the next one will. It's got a lot of different sounds, but there's still uh, that core of Watt's basic rock his whole spiel, Minutemen, get it out there, get it done, get it fast kind of ethos. Uh, this is one of his best-selling records, and it's highly recommended. You see it in the discount bin, or you just want to dig it out or check it on iTunes, can't recommend it highly enough. This is Eric Reanimator, wishing everyone a good 2015, and we'll catch you all later. Big train, big train, do you want to ride my big train?
segment and as i mentioned before he has his own love that album podcast so which he does basically his his edition of the podcast the compilation edition comes out usually in the middle of the month and this edition at the end of the month so search out we've already released one of eric's shows in 2015 where he discusses a, a couple of really great garage rock compilations one called a real cool time uh, a compilation of Swedish garage pop, and the other one called Do The Pop, which is a compilation of great Australian garage rock and psychedelic pop from the 80s, or late 70s, early 80s, featuring bands like The Saints and uh, Radio Birdman, which, if you know Eric, uh, two bands which of which he is completely enamoured with, and for good reason. And, yeah, both great compilations. So search out that episode if you have not already done so fine stuff indeed all right but what we're here to do in this edition i'm joined by david daskal of all-time top 10 podcast and best of my love the eagles tribute band to discuss joe jackson's second album not just second album but second album released within the same 12 month period in crazy yeah, indeed. He, he's seventy-nine. Saying, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, no, go for it. Go for it. It's it's fine. We're all about anything interesting to say. So if you have something, you just cut me off. That's fine. Okay, I'm cutting you off then. I'm now I'm a youngin, and I was raised on commercial music, and I'm of the MTV generation, and happy to say that. And when I say the MTV generation, I mean back when they showed videos twenty-four-seven. I mean, what an incredible godsend that was. So my introduction to Sir Joe Jackson was with his fantastic 1982 single, Steppin' Out. Mm. And I remember the music video very vividly, Morris, and lyrically his use of colors and witty play on words. It was probably around 1983 that I caught it, and I was a wee four-year-old. So um, as I got older, his singles like, Is She Really Going Out With Him and Breaking Us In Two found their way to me. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, for those who were listening for the first time here. Um, there weren't many outlets, many stations spinning Joe Jackson records. 
But as soon as I could get my hands on my very own credit card, I signed up for mail order home <laughs> services, such as Columbia House and BMG Music, and started building my CD collection. And it was here that I acquired Joe Jackson's greatest hits, which was uh, released in 1996. And this disc, this disc was great because it included a few cuts from every studio album he had done up to that point, mm. including a version of Slow Song. But what was clear to me was I absolutely loved his early stuff. Songs like Look Sharp and I'm the Man really flipped my lid. So I popped the cherry here. I believe I had her, her first uh, It's Different for Girls prior to acquiring the album. But that and I'm the Man were the first songs I became acquainted with from the album we're discussing today, I'm the Man. So my getting to know this album was a process before hearing the album in full. Excellent. Well, actually, I mean, you, you sort of preempted because I was going to ask your um, early memories of... Um of Joe Jackson, it, it, it seems to me that, uh, according to you know quite a few people who I've spoken to outside of Australia, uh, is that their experience with Joe Jackson does seem to be centred on the Look Sharp period, maybe on the Man, and Night and Day, and it seems like it was only like the hardcore fans who sort of followed him elsewhere, and I'm definitely in that hardcore fan. Uh, worship of uh, his career, a very, very versatile, very eclectic type of composer. And we'll sort of talk a little bit about that in a couple of moments. Um, one more thing I wanted to do, one more plug I wanted to give. Uh, I joined a Facebook page in the last week or two. Uh, I can't remember the exact name. I, I might put it up in the show notes. But it's basically something along the lines of uh, Joe Jackson has more songs than is she just is she really going out with him uh, <laughs> is, is, is a title and I thought oh wow what a great name and they've, they've actually got you know quite a few members on the group so I thought oh well, there'll be some good Joe Jackson discussion available there and uh, basically when you join the group you say right well hi I'm new and this is you know, and they ask well what are your favourite Joe Jackson songs and I listed that. And I made mention that we were going to be recording a podcast. And this fellow uh, said, Look, would you mind plugging my Joe Jackson tribute band? And I said, absolutely. His name was uh, Sam. And he's from the Baltimore area. So if you're a Love That Album podcast listener in Baltimore, go see Sam's band called, funnily enough, I'm the Man. Uh, the uh, And you can find them online, I think, at I'm the Man, without the apostrophe, I'm the Man Band. Dot com and I'm not sure how often they play but uh, there's a few film clips and there will be mention on the website as to when and where they will be playing next so uh, there you go a, a plug Sam's band Sam Serato I think if I remember correctly uh, if you live in that area and you don't get to see Joe Jackson often enough for your liking then go out and see and I think they focus pretty much on the early era Joe Jackson stuff, those first three albums, Look Sharp, I'm the Man, and Beat Crazy. So um, there you go, plug made. Uh, if I was living in Baltimore, I would be out to see you, sir, but I am not, so you're going to have to tour down in Australia. So that would be a wonderful thing. I second that. Yes, indeed, indeed. Uh, so as I mentioned before, this is the second time we're discussing Joe on uh, Love That Album. The first time was way back in December 2011 when I did a very rare solo episode. I don't like doing those terribly much, but if there's an album I feel I must discuss and no one else is willing to, I will cover it. So we discussed, or rather we, the royal we, I discussed uh, his album Night and Day. And Night and Day had been the start of the second phase of, um, or rather his second great band. Uh, but I'm the Man from October 1979 is the second in the trilogy of albums. 
with his first great band. In between those two periods, there was a one-off record. Jumping Jive was a one-off album that he did in between those two phases, paying tribute to the sort of swing jazz of the period of Lewis Jordan. There's the uh, obviously the title track that was a Cab Calloway song, and there's, I think, even a Glenn Miller tune in there, but for the most part, it's a tribute to uh, the music that he enjoyed, that Joe Jackson enjoyed listening to as a kid, uh, Louis Jordan, and that was my introduction to uh, Louis Jordan as well through uh, Joe Jackson, so I think uh, doing a tribute album like that is a fine thing if it leads you to go back to the source. Uh, and that band on that album featured a, a real crack series of uh, uh, jazz session musos, but also featured his longtime bass player, who's really been pretty much on just about everything he's ever recorded, uh, Graham Maybe, and I'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, uh, about him and the other members of the um, I'm the Man band. Uh, but it also featured a guy called Larry Tolfrey on drums, who went on to join Joe for the second phase of his career, which uh, was the Night and Day album and the Mike's Murder soundtrack. Uh, having already covered Joe Jackson before on the show, I won't repeat too much about the history. Go back to that LTA uh, episode if uh, you want to hear a little bit more about that. But just suffice to say that you know his career has been you know, very eclectic and he's gone and covered all sorts of styles. He's done um, you know, classical, his own version of classical uh, <laughs> albums, a couple of things out there. He's uh, done before mentioned jazz he's gone salsa uh, he's uh, gone and done the new wave thing um, he's gone and done AOR not always to absolutely brilliant effect but I've been a great admirer of him for even attempting that sort of stuff and uh, there's a third album in his canon which I definitely want to cover on the show at a later stage called Heaven and Hell and that's if you can imagine a mixture of electronic so not quite techno sounds, but uh, classical and electronic sounds. Uh, and that's his concept album uh, uh, with regards to The Seven Deadly Sin. Search that album out and we'll talk about that on the show at a later stage. Anyway, so this podcast is dedicated to the, uh, inverted commas, the difficult second album. I mean, uh, tell me, what do you think about that notion of the difficult second album, mm. David? Do you think it's a myth or it's just something that people latch on to you know do you think that there is something about the the second album that is particularly difficult and a lot of artists seem to fall flat on their faces there absolutely uh especially in that period of time in the 70s uh for, for decades artists were very uh pressured by record labels to follow up with a hit sometimes within the same year beatles had done that rush had done that uh, a lot of artists were pressured with the second album like how do i repeat the success of my debut and Megan Trainer's going to have to deal with that soon. The all about that bass chick. Uh, her, her album was just released yesterday or this past week. 
And after the single had been released last year, it was like the second biggest monster single of 2014 in the United States. Mm -hmm. But she's going to have to cross that bridge. And I think artists nowadays don't feel that pressure. They say, hey, let's take our time. Let's make sure we sit down and, and flesh out some songs to, you know, ride our coattails, but at the same time provide something, you know. I guess when you're doing your sophomore album, you can't do something completely fresh because you're not a, a rock god yet to, to the industry or, or to the world. So I think Maroon 5 is a prime example of someone who had taken their time. They took a couple of years, actually, to flesh out their second album. She Will Be Loved was their first number one song as a result of that. So unfortunately, folks like Joe Jackson didn't have that option. And I think with the success of it's it's interesting because you threw New Wave in the mix there, but that's how he was introduced to the world as a New Wave artist, which mm. is incredible. Awesome. And I, I'm really grateful that he pumped this second album out, much to critics' dismay, how it sounds so close to the first album. And I think it, it being difficult to take the, that criticism, I think that's what helped steer what had happened in his career. Because on this album, you hear all, all kinds of musical genres. You hear the swing, you hear the jazz, but it's kind of, you know, it's kind of made fun of, but you can tell that he's been trained as well. So right. I, with getting that criticism, I really honestly barely believe that that's what, what turned him into another direction. You but know, I, I, look, I've gone and read his biography called A, uh, A Cure for Gravity. And I mean, I think he found the whole punk new wave uh, entity very, very exciting considering what he'd gone and done before. And in one, we'll discuss later, but there's one of the songs on this album that pays tribute to the work he was doing before he got his recording contract. He was in cover bands and uh, cabaret bands and all sorts of things before that. But um, given his uh, background, I mean, like he was listening to classical music heavily as a kid and with not just like the, the accepted romantic period or classical periods of classical composers but he was listening to 20th century atonal composers if i remember correctly so he was always interested he was always there and i think you know him doing his classical excursions was an inevitability but the punk thing he found fresh and exciting after having focused on all the other styles of music that he'd been listening to his whole life i tend to think that it wasn't just criticism of his uh, early output from the critics that made him sort of go in a different direction. I think it was almost inevitable that he was going to do it. But for that period of time, it was new and fresh and exciting. He thought, right, oh, that's what the kids are listening to, right? I'm going to go there. Sure. And course. I think I, I would not be surprised if Billy Joel sat down and heard this album amongst all the other stuff that was coming out and was inspired to do Glass Houses, which... That's long still been suggested. You know, I, I remember when Glass Houses came out, and I used to, as a kid, I liked to cut out reviews from any of the local newspapers and stick them in the album covers, and I still have a bunch of those. Oh, and sick. and pretty much that was suggested that, you know, um, he'd been listening to Graham Parker and Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson to come up with Glass Houses. No kidding. Look at that. See, and I didn't even know it. You could just hear it within the album. When you hear the albums, they're like, this is, this, this is definitely influence. He definitely sat down and heard. And you know what's really funny because you can't help but mention those three artists together that now when I listen to Joe Jackson I hear a lot of Elvis Costello whereas before when I grew up I wasn't I knew maybe less than a handful of Costello songs here again being born four days before this album came out literally 
<laughs> You're making me feel old, man. Uh, no, no, you feel old. You sound rather young, and I'm 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 actually old too. Because anybody who's listening to my Miley Cyrus right now is probably not listening to the show. So, um, I I never made a correlation between the two of them for for the longest time until my adulthood, when people started saying, "Oh, he's a bit Elvis Costello like," and you know what? I, there's definitely a lot of that influence on Joe Jackson, especially in the South. Well, look, you know, you know what? Here's here's the thing, because like, uh, and it's long been suggested about the comparison between Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson, uh, and certainly, I mean, Fight. I I can understand I can understand why people sort of make that suggestion, but I think it was made so much in the early days it just got to be a fairly lazy journalistic. Um, comparison and i think certainly the comparison that was more valid for me i mean i guess between the two was the fact that as they went further on in their career both artists were very eclectic in terms of what they did but because they both started out as new wave or what they called new wave songwriters that got to be a lazy comparison i remember reading one article a few years ago where the uh, journalist had gone and said that joe jackson was uh, christopher Marlowe to elvis costello's william shakespeare and he's just sort of like a second rate also ran which oh. really i guess got my blood boiling at the time yeah, i don't like I don't like critics. I mean, the whole word itself, critic, they're, they're paid to criticize. And so if they, anything positive comes out of their mouth, I'm going to go buy a lotto ticket. So we can forget the critics. But uh, with, with, uh, it's funny, too. Joe Jackson, I was reading, his birth name is actually David Ian Jackson. And I'm That's like, why right, is yeah. David Jackson not an awesome name? And I guess because Joe was an acquired nickname for him, um, he's filed now within Janet Jackson and Michael Jackson in, a, in an artist's catalog. It's a, it's a nice separation between the two when you're looking for albums. I always found that to be quite interesting, but I, I didn't even know until I was doing research on this album that his birth name was David, so that makes me feel really good. And then also, the producer of this album is David Kirschenbaum. Kirschenbaum, yep, that's right. Yep. He is from a town called Springfield, Missouri, which makes me poop my pants, Morris, because <laughs> that's where I went to college. And I'm, I'm like tripping out. I'm doing research on Kirschenbaum, and he's the guy who who set up Joe Jackson and got him signed to A&M and worked on his first couple albums and also on Night and Day and um, and also helped Duran Duran blow up into the pop scene because their first album didn't take off, much to anyone's shocking surprise when they hear that trivia fun fact. Mm. And then he, got, he remixed their songs and then uh, what you know of Hungry Like the Wolf and everything off of that album is, is because of Is that Kirschenbaum produced? Would you believe it? I, I certainly, because the style, the sound style is completely different, which is a big tribute to Kirschenbaum because it goes to show, right, I'm not having a flat, there's not the Kirschenbaum style, it's nope. what will work for this artist. Unlike, and, someone, unlike another producer of the time, say like Mike Chapman, who had, there was a Mike Chapman sound or other great producers of, you know, of uh, the rock era, so like um, uh, uh, Phil, uh, Phil Spector, there's a Spector sound or there's... You know, sound. Yeah, but to much, much to Mike Chapman's credit, dude, My Sharona, 1979, biggest song of the year. Best, one of the best songs of all time. It's actually in my top, top 10 all-time songs of all time, if you just come up with a general list. Well, that doesn't I, I think that Get the Knack is one of the greatest album one of the greatest rock albums of all time and uh, but uh christian Baum's other big notable thing after that was working with tracy chapman for her first album with fast car and if you want to talk about being eclectic and being shocked about his work 
He's also, I don't know if he won any awards, but she was nominated for like six or seven awards, including Best New Artist. Yeah, that and, first album was monster, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And this is all from a guy I had no idea who, had, you know, I didn't know his work, didn't know where he was from. And and there's a lot of Davids involved, including the drummer. But uh, before we go into other stuff, I'm going to let you lead the way. Okay, well, now that you mention about uh, the drummer Dave Houghton, the next thing I wanted to do, normally I don't sort of discuss this in as great detail, but this band deserves mention each of the members of uh the look sharp era band because and there's only there's only three other guys there's only three other guys they reformed in uh the early noughties i think in 2003 and the project was to just get together for one year so like he'd gone through all these other bands for all these other projects but there was a lot of sentimentality i guess amongst the fans for those first three albums and even amongst the members of the band they knew that they had some sort of magic there so they got together back in 2003 and recorded uh, an album called volume four you know because it was their fourth album but uh, and the front cover shows the dial on an amplifier and it's set to four so you know nice little bit of witty well not really but anyway they call it volume four and the and they called that and that album was attributed to the joe jackson band so he knew that they were held in high regard as a band not just uh, him as the lead singer and main songwriter. So let's talk about the various members of the band. Now, you've already gone and mentioned Dave, so let's talk about Desperate Dave Houghton, as they call him. Mm. Uh, now, Joe had a real knack for picking great drummers. Uh, I mentioned before Larry Tolfrey, who played in the Night and Day uh, slash Mike, Mike's Murder era. Uh, Gary Burke, who played for a number of albums, uh, beyond uh, body and soul, and who uh, Joe called a veritable god of thunder. Uh, and he also had a guy called Dan Hickey. Uh, and we cannot forget, um, she's not technically like a drum kit player, but she was a star percussionist, a woman called Sue Hadjopoulos. And it has been my absolute pleasure to watch this woman play live with uh, Joe Jackson's band, and really, maybe even more so than Joe himself, she was the most popular member in the audience uh, of the band. Incredible. Dave, I urge you to look up Sue Hadjopoulos or look up some Joe Jackson with her playing. She's an absolute monster percussionist. Um, you know, I've got a long list of things already that I've acquired from, from the show before talking about the album. I don't know if I can add that to my list at this time. Uh, I'm just joking. I'm, I'm looking forward to it, and that's great. Uh, great to hear. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's no, absolutely awesome. So look, all these uh, percussionists slash drummers had something unique going for them, and uh, they were even you know really adaptable. You know, at playing stuff depending on what material Joe would want to play live from which era. Um, if that doesn't sound like a contradiction, um, a desperate Dave Houghton. Is, why is he desperate? Tell, tell everybody why he's desperate. I don't know. I mean, have you found anything that says why he's desperate? It's just that's how he was um, often introduced. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like it uh, on, on the drums. Desperate Dave Houghton. I'll allow you to make a bit more noise than you're making. Uh, on drums, Desperate Dave Houghton. So I, I don't know, but that was that was his moniker. Um, you know, he is he is somewhere between fifty and seventy percent is the reason why I like Joe Jackson's early material. I'm a big big drum freak. I've I've raised myself on the drums, so I'm a little biased there. But it's because of his work and the meshing with with Joe Jackson's material is why I gravitate towards it. 
But the thing is, if you've listened to um, any of the material, uh, any of the other non-Dave Houghton material throughout uh, Joe Jackson's career, uh, then you'd realise that he really is a... Uh, well, that all his drummers are very, very adaptable at his style. And he just seems... JJ seems to have this knack of just picking great drummers. And Dave Houghton seems to be, uh, as I was going to say, if it's not too much of a contradiction, both meat and potatoes, but also very, very inventive. Uh, and just listen to what he plays um, on the live version. There's a live album, uh, which basically covers one, one side... Of each, as a double album, so if you go back to the vinyl, each side covers a different era of oh. uh, of his band. And on the first side has this look sharp era, and you get to hear what um, uh, Desperate Dave Houghton is playing on Got the Time. And Graham, maybe, who we'll get to in a few minutes, uh, he's doing a bass solo, and the two of them just seem to mesh so well. Yeah, incredible. Uh, I, I'm hoping... I don't know if you know if there's any live DVD that's been put together from that era, but I would love to see something from 79 or 80 or even 81. There's sure. there's live footage on YouTube. There are Joe No, Jax. I want whole concert jam-packed, edited, put together, and put up. Uh, JJ, if you're out there, if you're out there listening, you know, make it make it happen. Make it happen. Make it happen. But uh, there, there are there are a couple of uh, great live recordings out there, which originally on VHS. I don't know if they've made away made their way officially to DVD. There's one recorded in uh, 1986, I think, uh, in Tokyo, featuring uh, the band that he put together for his Big World album. And there's another one that was recorded uh, in Sydney, I think in 1992, 1993, when he was covering, uh, I think it might have been the last show on uh, like a six-month to a year-long tour for the Laughter and Lust album. You said VHS. You know, if anyone found out if anyone owned a VHS recorder in this country, we would be put in prison and have to serve a sentence and do community service. So how so? For for what? For copying that? Or owning a VHS player as opposed to a DVD or a Blu-ray player. I only joke. I, it's not, I, I it's wouldn't. Not. I wouldn't have thought that. I would have thought you'd be put in prison for even having a DVD player nowadays, Dave, because <laughs> it's all streaming nowadays, isn't it? You know? Watch it online. Bloody. But hell. yes, David, David Hoffman, man. So, oh, so, yeah, look, he's, he could do really simple things like uh, the song "Kind of Cute," which we'll um, no doubt refer to later on. Uh, do something with that great '60s pop feel, but then he goes and brings the thunder on "I'm the Man." Just an incredible player. And I, from what I remember from JJ's biography, uh, I think he's just basically nowadays still living in uh, the town that they met with, uh, and he's just making a living as a drum teacher. So you know, really in rock circles, he should be like worshipped as a as a rock god. But he's just you know, he should have his own life. custom drumsticks made so I can purchase them. At a guitar center. Right, right. I, I, look, I'd, I'd certainly go out and do that. He actually played last time I saw him when he came out on that reunion tour. There was um, he was playing a really unusual drum setup. I think so. Like he might have had like a. They weren't electronic drums, but he had uh, like his floor tom had no body. It was just like a rim with uh-huh. with a, with a skin. And I was thinking, where's the body for that? What what the hell's going on? And, oh, that's awesome. Uh, but yeah, it, was, it was it was a little unusual. They weren't like um, oh, what what do they call those uh, th- those drums? Like you might have like three of them on a stand. Oh, the name will come to me, but no one's played them in years. But he had this like rimless. Uh, it's uh, just a rim with no body floor tom. But people have had that for like mounted toms as well. Uh, I'll remember the name later on. Never mind. 
So let's move on to the guitar player. And Joe Jackson also seems to have a thing for getting guitar players, either who are strong rhythm players, or at least getting them to play rhythm, not to do anything much in the lead guitar vein. He's not much of a, a lead guitar fan. And that's, that's quite fine. That's quite okay. On guitar, Gary Sanford. Come on. Gary Sanford. I really, I'm of the opinion that rhythm guitar players ought to be held in guitar hero worship. Yeah, they're really unsung heroes, quite honestly. And then to add to that, piano players don't really like the light to be taken away from them. And a lead guitarist will do just that. So if you listen to folks like Elton John and Billy Joel and Joe Jackson, there's, you're not going to find a whole lot of lead guitar work. Maybe with something like a Funeral for a Friend, you'll get a Love Lies Bleeding, the guitar solo right, there. Right. Or Lee Joel's Allentown, but that's about it. So the piano players, they'll they'll enjoy the one-off, but they don't want the spotlight to be taken away from them. So no, yeah, you're going to come and do your job, and that's going to be it. Well, look, I, I see what you're saying there, and that's fine and fair, but there's two things to take into consideration here, is that uh, on the Joe Jackson albums, and particularly in these first three, the lead guitar playing, oh, sorry, the, the rhythm guitar playing, I should say, really is very front and center in the mix. So it's not like he's saying, hey, eyes on the piano. It's eyes on the rhythm guitar player. So right. it's, it's not like it's in the background. So like on the, 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 oh, no, Billy Joel, the Billy Joel and Elton John stuff, the rhythm guitar, is, it's there, it's in the background, and you're aware of it, but it's all focus on the piano. Whereas, on, on, especially on those first three albums, there's little or no piano to begin with. It's like, you know, Joe Jackson is the front man, so all you've got is drums, bass, and guitar. But he's still right. working on the rhythm guitar to deliver um, what the what the melodies are. In fact, actually, we'll come to when we come to Graham. Maybe as was pointed out to me, someone in the week said to me, "Well, you know, it's actually a band where the lead instrument is the bass and the rhythm yep. is providing the bedrock." Uh, so crazy. And Gary Sanford provides a nice, fun, jingly, jangly, uh, just mesh of of. It's very very staccato, very staccato yes. style. There, I was looking for a technical term. Well, there you go, you have it. It's staccato. Uh, Appreciate. Uh, you're, you're welcome. Uh, so, a good example of uh, what he does. There's um, there's a big reggae influence in what he does, and uh, you know Geraldine and John, which we'll come back to that shortly. Yep. Uh, but an, another fa a couple of fave examples uh, from the Look Sharp album, uh, One More Time and Look Sharp itself. Uh, just the rhythm guitar work is absolutely crazy there. Uh, and I, I just really feel that that style of guitar playing, it's so underappreciated. He does something a little bit different on different for girls where he's you know, playing the, the two octave notes apart. That's the motif. Which is you know, different to what he's doing elsewhere on the album. But um, still, by and large, he's you're, you're right. He's not doing the, the lead guitar god sort of thing. And I think the albums work all the better for it. So, But yeah, Gary Sanford, absolutely um, a, a wonderful guitar player. And uh, I, I sort of haven't followed up as to what else he's been doing when not with Joe Jackson, but um, I'd be very interested to know. Yeah, maybe he can write in and uh, you can talk about it on your, your next show. So go ahead and, and email him a letter, Gary Sanford. We'd like to read it. Gary Sanford, I, I actually did try to send him something on Facebook, but I'm not sure that he actually looks at it that often. So uh, 
maybe he hasn't seen that note. So, uh, Gary, if you are listening to this show, if someone has pointed you that way, please send us a note and tell us what you've been doing and how you came across that incredible rhythmic style of yours. So now to the man. When we say I'm the man, really, the man of this band is Graham Maybe. On bass guitar, Graham Maybe. All right. You know if his name starts with Graham and it doesn't end with Cracker, he's an awesome guy. <laughs> Graham Cracker. I wonder if Crackers was his um, was his nickname. I don't know. Maybe he maybe he should send us an email too and, and let us know how much how much jive he got from that. How much jumping jive with a nickname? Maybe. Yeah, Graham. Maybe you know. And it, I didn't even honestly think about it because it's so natural to hear the music and think that there is a lead guitar there, but it's actually a bass guitar that's moving up and down the neck and there's nothing more than I love than a bass player who knows how to walk the bass. It's just incredible. Mm. It's fantastic. He's, he's been on so many albums. He's largely sought after. Uh, there's, there's a really two hit wonder guy, but most people would think he's a one hit wonder or no hit wonder at all. Nobody's playing his stuff on, on radio out here these days, but a guy named Henry Lee summer. Okay, I haven't heard of him. Yeah. Uh, look up two two songs. He's got a really raspy voice. Mm. Um, his one was Hey Baby in 1989, and I really love a song called I Wish I Had a Girl. Okay. Yeah, I, he might not be a guy that you would press or repeat to hear the songs because he's he's wailing at the top of his lungs in a bluesy rock fashion, but Graham, maybe he's playing bass on his cuts. Oh, so, nice. very, yeah, this guy's been largely sought after, wanted man. He's, he's played on a couple of albums of uh, one of my very favorite singer-songwriters, Marshall Crenshaw. I think uh, a couple of the albums from his Warner Brothers period. And, and yeah, it's absolutely a perfect fit for, uh, for him as well. So, you know, the, the whole sort of melodic pop type of thing. And uh, But yeah, no, he, he's an absolutely uh, incredible player. And versatility is obviously what keeps him playing with uh, Joe uh, both, you know, his as a player, and I imagine the challenges that Joe presents him with stylistically. So he's probably just as interested in uh, doing different things as uh, Joe Jackson has doing, you know, uh, compositionally. For certain, um, when you, when people listen to "I'm the Man," if you've not heard this album, which I'm going to guess that a lot of you have not, play it in full and just listen to the album. And then when you listen, listen back a second time, just listen for the bass. Just listen for the bass in each song, and you're, you're going to be wowed by the album you're gonna like it 10 times more than if you already just heard it on a first listen so when you listen to it just take it all in and then give it a second go around and only pay attention to the bass well we probably once again have to come back and thank david kirschenbaum for that because he's gone and you know really put graham maybe pretty high up in the mix and you know i I imagine that might have been on instruction from joe but i think david kirschenbaum has done such an excellent job in how he placed graham maybe into the mix because you know he could have been drowned in there and you know all too often you know we can there might be like a fantastic performance by uh by a bass player but you know if the if the uh, artist under question or the producer thing thinks that well you know you really are supposed to be just the bedrock for the rest of the band you won't get to notice exactly what it is that they're doing but right. uh, graham graham's playing here every note is clearly defined and you can hear it and it doesn't take over the music but it does say i have a place here and that's that's the thing you know we, we have three individuals and i'm not counting joe here because he's he actually doesn't play instrumental very much on this album a little bit of harmonica a little bit of piano a little bit of melodica but really he leaves the musicianship to these three other guys and they're all immediately noticeable and yet they gel really well as a band 
on them. Fantastically well. On yeah, what a great outfit. What a nice puzzle. Mm, a great mm. baseball diamond, if you will. And, uh, yeah, Graham, Graham, maybe. he. You were saying that he, he, he definitely picks his notes. You could tell there's feeling there. It's not arbitrary. He's very selective, and he's got, he's got heart. He's got yeah. soul. He does. He does. All right, look, we've been speaking for a little while just about the background of uh, the musicians and, and what led to this album and all that. We haven't actually discussed anything about the album itself. So what I'm thinking now might be a good time to just to have another quick break, and then we'll come back and discuss the album itself. What do you reckon? Absolutely. Let's play some tunes. Let's play some tunes. Uh, we'll be back. We'll pay the bills, and then we'll play some tunes and discuss some joke. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, all you podcast listeners, here's an update. See here. We know some of that bad brown acid has been going around, but we've got an alternative. See here. Have these headphones here. Throw them on. See here. Movies for your mind. See here. See here podcast. We discuss music-related films once a month. Find us on iTunes or at seehere, that's S-E-E-H-E-A-R, dot podbean, dot com. Just relax, listen, and float downstream. See here. Okay, welcome back to Love That Album, episode number 71, David Daskal. What's up, Morris? Welcome back, everybody. Indeed. And uh, we've spoken a long time about Joe Jackson and the background to I'm the Man, but let's talk about the album itself. So, as to the actual album, if you've only heard Look Sharp and you're wondering whether this album is a progression on the debut, the answer for me, I'd say, is a qualified no. Um, the album doesn't seem in some ways to be a progression on Look Sharp, but it's sort of hard to be sure of that in 2015, looking back on Joe's entire career, because, you know, only a few short years later, he was making Night and Day, um, you know, which is a complete, uh, well, I'm not going to use the uh, mathematical 90 degree turn cliche, but it's certainly in a different direction. Uh, and it's probably hard to determine whether there were baby step changes between Look Sharp and I'm the Man, because you know if you've followed Joe's career, you know that he's made all these really radical changes. So I'd say it doesn't appear to be a progression between the two albums because of the big changes that he made later on. But certainly one thing that has stayed the same, that's a good thing, is high quality of songwriting. And, and really, for me, that's ultimately the important thing. I think there's a lot of emphasis, maybe too much emphasis placed on bands need to go in a different direction. They need to do things, keep versatile, keep their listeners' interest up. And you know, certainly that's desirable sometimes, but if you've got quality songwriting, for me, I think that's the, uh, the ultimate key. 
absolutely. And I would think that there were some some leftovers because as an original artist, I can I can speak speak for artists. I can safely say that you can't fit everything onto the first album, right? Or at least that day you couldn't. So I'm sure he had material to work with. And then there are songs that are evident on this album that we'll get into that came as a result of achieving success. That was something he didn't have a reference to for his first album. Right. Uh, I mean, look, I think I remember reading, uh, well, not re- uh, reading, but hearing on a documentary about The Knack that uh, their second album was really, it, it was meant to be part of a double album. So Get The Knack was originally envisioned as a as a two album. So by the time they got to that second album, it was just like, all right, here's the songs that we, were go- that we had in the first place. And I'm sort of wondering, you know, that there would have been, a, a good chunk, if not all, as you know, you've gone and indicated, you know, from success, but a good chunk of "I'm the Man" was probably written about the time that he already had "Look Sharp" in the can. So it wasn't like, oh, what can I do? How can I keep up with this? I'm sure a lot of those songs were from his um, pre A and M. Sure, and when you're young in your twenties, the ideas just keep flowing. So inspiration you take everywhere. I'm not surprised at all. So we've already gone and seen, you know, so he has a great set of tunes here and we've already spoken about the cracking musicianship uh, that's evident on uh, this album. Um, now, whilst he certainly didn't fit into the punk mold per se, it's, you know, as we mentioned before, it's undeniable that the band is putting out some of that excitement that punk was going for and, and giving the finger to, uh, you know, the rock dinosaurs of the day. But mind you, of course, you know, Joe being a trained pianist and percussionist. And actually, that's something else. I forgot to mention that the biography actually states that he got his degree from the Academy of Music in London as a percussionist, not as a pianist. It was unusual. Look out. He, he was never going to sound punk authentic, but he did say in the book he was genuinely excited by what the punk movement was doing. So he took some of that training and was able to find these great musicians and put their excitement combined with their musicianship and come up with uh, the albums that he did. I'm the man. Most folks out there, I'd hope, would be familiar with uh, the title track, which is really as high octane as it gets. haven't already done so search out a live version on youtube or on the the live album that he put out called joe jackson live 1980s and 1986 for me this is an absolutely perfect song uh, because of the uh houghton and maybe team there you know they, they work as a really tight and energetic rhythm section and gary sanford shows what exciting rhythm guitar can be and for me why this song is just one that i keep coming back to is besides you know the great music is joe has written an absolutely scorchingly funny lyric it's a great perspective yep. of uh, the con man the shyster who we see on the front cover of the album and we should actually say that the front cover of the album has him as i think what they used to call a spiv uh, yeah that's piv he was trying to start a, like a branching division of 
the punk the punk new wave genre and trying to invent spiv rock and well it didn't get it very far but it was an attempt at that and yeah absolutely this song is brilliantly written it's super underrated i know that jackson loves this song it's mm. a fun masterpiece about yeah someone trying to make a quick buck trying to suavely sell you on anything and this lyrics like skateboards i've almost made them respectable <laughs> who would sing that that's incredibly funny and I had a giant rubber shark, and it really made a mark. Did you look like a look like, a, like an old blood? <laughs> Still a relevant song, and if I mean, not the, the only thing that sort of keeps it of its time are those things like you know, giant rubber sharks, skateboards, and kung fu. So we know that this is locked into the seventies. But you know, take modern trends uh, of, of things that the companies are trying to sell us and really the song is you know lyrically still completely relevant it really when it comes down to what keeps it relevant is you know the lines i got the trash and you got the cash so baby we should get along fine and it's still unfortunately it's really very very topical yes and the line that scares me is you think you're immune but i can sell you anything yep i love it and the way he sings it too it's not just it's not simply delivered his his choice and delivery with his songs are incredible this song was actually released as the lead-off single that's how super proud he should have been of the song and it only reached number 23 in canada it didn't chart anywhere else so that was kind of a spooky foretelling of uh oh maybe we should go in another direction because most you know there are a lot of the cuts that I love off the album, this is one of my favorites mm. because of the frenetic in your face playing on top of the brilliant song. Well, it, it, look, I have no recollection of how it did on the singles charts here in Australia. I mean, I remember is she really going out with him and different for girls charting, but, but, it, I, but it didn't chart at all. It didn't chart at all. Amazing because I think that, that song every time I've every time I've seen him perform live, and I must be a good half a dozen times. Uh, he could not leave the stage without doing that song that always gets a huge reaction but maybe considered like as a deep album cut or maybe you know the the 2000 people in the audience are the only 2000 people who bought a copy of of the single and i actually think i have a copy of the single which is certainly worthwhile as having as a as an old 45 because on the b side has him doing a really high energy punky version of um, the old chuck berry song come on so if you can um, Track that down at your local secondhand record store or something. That's going to be a real gem for someone. Uh, 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 without that, you can actually, they when they remastered this album on the reissue, they added Come On. Oh, did to, they? Okay. Right, so you know, I've still got my old record bought back in the day. I haven't gone and um, updated that to, uh, to CD. But, but you yeah. want to get the version then you can absolutely get chuck berry's come on but the only other thing i sort of want to add about that song from a live perspective is he came to australia oh, i don't remember what year it was but he was promoting um one of his uh classical sounding uh albums not quite a classical album but it was called night music and it was a really really interesting song cycle very introspective and uh heavy on the string section sort of thing but he came out on that tour and i think it was just him on the piano, Graham maybe on the bass, a guy who produced a couple of his albums, Ed Reunersdale on the violin, and the aforementioned, the brilliant Sue Hadjopoulos on the percussion. And so they were doing predominantly this album, Night Music, but he came out to do an encore, 
of I'm the Man, and we'd never seen Joe play the guitar before. And he certainly proves that, never mind Billy Joel doing Matter of Trust on the guitar, Joe Jackson actually showed he had guitar chops, and we'd never seen him. And he play, he's playing I'm the Man really, really quite frenetically. And what was quite cute is he took out like a cheap and nasty 15, 20-watt guitar amp, plugged into that, and then played like a busker, and he was saying, look, I apologise for the shit guitar playing, but it was very, very frenetic and very punk, uh, and Hello. quite quite appropriate. I don't know if that's anywhere on YouTube, but um, if you can find that, it's certainly well worth um, looking at that. One thing that always struck me as odd about those first three albums was Joe's very sparse, very rare use of the piano. He, and, you know, because we got, you know, I'd mentioned to you before that he'd spent many years for like learning learning uh, to play the piano through the Royal Academy of Music and he'd played piano in a bunch of uh, cover bands and cabaret bands and even he, like later on he even sort of ended up playing the sax I think on his uh, Body and Soul album but on these three albums he's content to be you know the snarling punky singer on on these records quickly wanted to ask you how effective do you think he is as a front man as actually as a singer do you think he's distinctive i think and i've not seen a live show from him and i think being trapped behind an instrument as the piano there's only so much you can do Mm. i think that this is a very unorthodox uncharacteristic thing for joe jackson to be doing now the fact that he was introduced to the world this way is 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 trivial to me because based based off of what he says is that he he loved the excitement of the times is when you look at his image he does not speak punk he does not speak new wave. Right. Uh, he has his own fashion, trendy sense. It's just he shares a common interest with those who really fit the bill. Like, we are devout punk. We're going to mohawk our hair. We're going to spike it up. We're going to dye it 17 different colors and tat our bodies up. I think that it wasn't even just living vicariously through the music. It was, I have something to contribute to this, and I really enjoy it. And mm-hmm. that's what I really get from him. So he's very, it's very unconventional to see him. I don't think of Joe Jackson as a front man, but when you hear these songs, he's definitely confident and it's just, he's just a very interesting character. He's not, I wouldn't rank him on a list of top front man ever, mm-hmm. you know, but I've, I've never seen a live show, so I can't speak 100%, but I can very, very much believe to pin it down to say that this was something he was interested in. He was successful with it, but he's not like, the poster child for it. No, yeah, look, I agree. I mean, look, you know, the fact that he was uh, interested in classical music and you know was a, a trained pianist is not very punk, and yet he did share on some of these albums, uh, on some of those early albums, and actually on on songs on later albums, on individual songs, he did have some of that angry young man ethos. Uh-huh. I think I even remember you know reading an album, uh, an album, reading an interview with him somewhere where he said, "You have to keep some of that." angriness in you otherwise you know you get to i don't know what was the description that he used but he, he tended to think you know one, once you lose the anger you get completely dull of course mind you if all you are is angry then you're yeah, dull then but he but he has a good blend people can pay attention to the lyrics and i think he definitely forays into the i'm upset i'm disappointed all the time character so you you want to kind of balance that out and he does that with uh kind of cute Tra- 
talking about unorthodox mm. is that it's nice to hear something if anybody would would listen to this album and say what are the throwaway songs there aren't any throwaway songs on this album but the song that stands out as far as being different is is kind of cute because it's hey i'm having a good time i'm having fun and i'm not like angry at the world and that's a rare occasion of getting joe jackson in that state of mind he's still young enough that I mean, he's got some positive spirit and that comes out in that song mm-hmm. well it, it's interesting that you sort of refer to kind of cute probably the other song in it, it'd be a pair so you got kind of cute and another song get that girl which are both have the the bracketed title you know so kind of cute a pop song get that girl a pop song and i find songs like this as inclusions surprising in a way and yet not not so surprising because it seems to me that artists were a lot more in that period showing about diversity and like you know the top 40 charts of the day were loaded with songs of a very diverse nature you know you'd have your your hard rock song sitting quite comfortably with with earth wind and fires after the love has gone this yeah. year or straight sultan of swing uh, 1979 is probably in my opinion the second best year in pop music altogether because you have all the genres competing very healthily together and you could turn on a top 40 station and hear all these songs and it wasn't you know this is new wave and this is all we're going to listen to or this was r&b and we're going to put you in a corner it was all very collectively blended together you, you could quite happily listen to this and as you say listen to earth wind and fire or my sharon or, or, or anything of the day absolutely you know Dionne warwick in fact you know like she had kind of like a rocker that was kind of a period of time where soft rock artists found drummers who were you know as you said earlier god of thunder like on songs so when you hear like christopher cross who made his debut album in 79 it came out in 80 there's some really fast drum playing there uh you, you talked about get that girl it's a nice and bouncy track that you can still bang your head to i mean i like banging my head to joe jackson stuff i may be crazy but i hear <laughs> it in music but get that girl and kind of cuter also parallel in that he's still optimistic about going after the girl and, and trying to win her over because i definitely get the sense that he didn't succeed in that department a whole lot Uh, probably largely misunderstood or his sexual orientation was largely questioned or he was just kind of weird to girls Mm. so before he you know honed in on that or i guess he you know he touched base on that he's still optimistic in that song and when i think of get that girl i also think of don't want to be like that which is two tracks before that one Mm. on the uh, album i know yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say the thing about those two songs is, you know, but you know, Joe Jackson is he's an adult. He's not trying to be a pinup sort of guy, but he obviously right. had a thing for the bubblegum sound of those songs, and yet those songs are very adult. I mean, with the lyrics in them, they both make reference to I'm having a, I'm sitting there watching you drinking my beer. I'm sitting there watching you while you're drinking a gin and tonic. He liked it, his alcohol. He, he did like his alcohol. <laughs> so th- these are not just, I, I guess, the uh, sw- you know, the cute and innocent milkshake drinking songs of, of uh, the, the late 50s sort of bubblegum type of pop. But it, he obviously has a fondness for that sound. And it's, it's really bubblegum as seen through the filter of Desperate Dave Houghton, Graham Maybe, and Gary Sanford. So it's, it, it's a nod in the direction. Uh, and it's certainly a long way from the sound of I'm the Man that we mentioned before right. or uh, Don't Want to Be Like That, as you just mentioned. But it, it's still a nod in that direction. And the other thing that I find interesting about it is because a lot of the artists of that time, I don't think 
we were sort of quite yet at the stage where artists were looking back and wanting to pay respect to their influences. They they were saying, no, nah, we're you know we're tired of the the stuff that our parents were listening to. We're all about doing something new and something different. And, you know, by and large, that's what Joe Jackson is doing. And yet he's got these two songs which would have been a tribute to, you know, musically the songs of his youth. So uh, it's different and, and it's, it's expected and yet not. So uh, I, right. find that, I find that really interesting. I, mean, I want to do the twist, you know. I know he grew up in the 60s, so I definitely want to do the twist. And then perhaps the Go-Go's of the early 80s. I think right. took, took some, some influence from this. You know, it's just really bouncy. I want to just throw my hands up in the air and dance like nobody's watching kind of feeling. So that's what I get when I get, get that girl. And yeah, it's nice ease poking at fun and, and just having a good time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really want to attack two amazing songs uh, that help me get acquainted to this album and steer the direction away. Uh, I wanted to separate I'm the Man too with, with bringing these two songs in because if we just talked about the four greatest songs off this album, in my opinion, three of the four are absolutely frantic and frenetic. Now, I want to talk about Friday. Lazy Jilly was a flower child All the summer, calmly running wild She'd be silly and her friends just smile Pass the bottle, wash the pills now while we're wrong Friday at a lesbian backyard barbecue party in Silver Lake, the home of the hipster in Los Angeles. <laughs> this was around the summer of 2008, and I was helping an acting friend, Nicole Newman, see a vocal coach as we were writing songs together, and the coach had invited me over to this barbecue. And I remember the day very clear- clearly as this was when I met two very young, charming lads who I knew were going on, going to just go on and do great things. And one was a fellow named Jens Korkemeyer, who's now in engineering and production, and the other, Colin Deaton who sings in an incredible indie summer of love style of band you should check out called the Mowglis, M-O-W-G-L-I-S. And they're getting some play on K-Rock, which is the big alternative rock station out here. So yeah, you like the whole summer of love, let's love each other and be hippie-like, but with a modern you know, take on it. These kids are very knowledgeable of that, that time period and uh, amazing. There are six or seven of them, mm. and they do a cool job. They're blowing up. At, at any rate, I was passing through the kitchen, and someone either had a playlist or a shuffle on their iTunes, and I recognized Joe Jackson's voice immediately, but couldn't understand what kind of frantic playing was backing him up. See, mind you, all I was familiar with was were his singles mm. and his greatest at the time, which were all softer stuff. And I was like, what the hell is this awesome song, and why don't I know about it? I was, I was furious. And it turns out it was Friday, the closing track on the album, so I snatched the cut, you know, immediately when I went home. And then it was shortly thereafter, I thought, well, if he had something like this on this album, let, let me sample some other stuff. And so I had come across On Your Radio, which is another lovely frenetic song. Mm. So the pieces of this album came to me in that respect. And I finally recently acquired the album and knew I was going to love it. And Side A and Side B have three of the four bookends I, I mentioned above, which are my favorites. And Jackson is, you know, just a masterful songwriter. The way he sings his lyrics shows his inventiveness and, as you mentioned, ability to be versatile. He's very gifted. I hear you get him young and mildly cynical, but with you know the lighthearted fun that's sprinkled throughout. Every song has a ridiculously attention-getting opening line. We just run through them, 
I, I think it's just a nice collage, Morse. Uh, the, the opening track on your radio, ex-friends, ex-lovers, and enemies, I've got your cases in front of me today. I mean, how does he not want to listen to a song that starts with that? See the bright red sports car, see the happy couple. You make a guy feel humble. What the hell is wrong with you tonight? Pretty soon now you know I'm going to make a comeback. I don't know why they come here. I'm only glad they do. Don't make me sad talking about tomorrow. Hey, you, I'm dancing with your girl. And Lazy Jilly was a flower child. All opening lines, all very across boards that are interplanetary there's nothing repetitive about this album until you mentioned that i sort of hadn't thought about the the crack opening line to uh, get your attention what i like about all these songs uh, from a lyrical perspective is that he lets you the listener fill in the story so, i mean there are some songwriters who might just you know they might write about love or they might write about a topic their perspective on it or they might tell a great story and i'm a big big fan of storytelling songwriters and what he's gone and done here in the main is he's gone and said right well here's where a particular character is in time you can fill in the backstory you listen to what this character has to say and you sort of think right okay i know what they're about i think i know where they where they are with uh, their stories On your radio, which I'm sure Ben Folds would be a big fan of because uh, One Angry Dwarf and 200 Solemn Faces is another great song about a performer who's saying, you treated me like shit when I was a kid. Well, guess what? You you can kiss my ass goodbye because I'm really, really big. On your radio is completely that story. So uh, I, I'd be... I'm not saying that, you know, Joe Jackson or Ben Folds are the only two people who've ever thought of that as a topic, but I'm pretty sure that uh, Joe Jackson would have loomed large in Ben Fold listening growing up and uh, this song must have spoken to him and he thought right well I'm going to take that topic and run with it in a different way. I think it might just be rather convenient I think it'd be funny and interesting to find out and and I'm going to go see Ben Fold perform at Bonnaroo which is an amazing festival in Manchester Tennessee an hour and a half southeast of Nashville in the summertime. Now Coachella is the big music festival out in Los Angeles but in all honesty it is shite as they would say in England. Um, They don't recognize bluegrass at all, and I don't think that the the attendees would have any concern for bluegrass either. So Bonnaroo is a a festival that incorporates jamming sessions, and Billy Joel, of all people, are headlining this year, and that's one of the reasons why I'm going, Mm. Uh, the main reason, actually, and uh, which is very unorthodox for him to head a festival. But Mumford & Sons will be there, a lot of newer independent artists, and bluegrass artists, but Ben Folds, Ben Harper, pretty much anybody with the name Ben is going to be playing. I think that, I think it's just coincidental because everyone who has been hung out to dry and an outcast or a nerd or, you know, felt unloved, they want their shot at redemption and know what talent they possess. And I think everybody has that song to, to speak about. So I'm not, I'm not the least bit surprised he opened the album with the song and it's catchy too. You know, it's not just Hey, I'm hoity-toity. I know that I've made it now. I'm going to rub it in your face. Like, he's having a good time with it. 
and yet the, what I <clears throat> what I really dig about um, the song musically is uh, you know, it has both a, a new and an old feel about it. when I say new I mean new for the time it definitely sort of fits in with that whole new wave aesthetic and yet he goes and brings a harmonica on in on it in between verses and sort of has a, a little bit of an old time bluesy feel yeah and I, th- I think because of those cross of genres too is probably a reason why if they released I'm the Man with such great intention and, and saw it falter is that I think this could have been on the heels of that song because this is absolutely a radio friendly song I just don't understand. It wasn't released as a single. It's very inventive and it's very catchy. There's nothing complicated about it. And maybe it's because of the crossing of genres with his, you know, bluesy feel to it. And you can't really identify it. You can't really put a pin on it. Mm. Is that maybe, maybe they didn't, that's why they didn't want to attack it. Probably one more song I want to make mention of. I haven't even sort of gone and said anything about the big single, uh, which is different for girls. I know you want to have uh, something to say about it. But the last thing I want to sort of, as a separate song, I want to bring up is Geraldine and John. See the bright red sports car, see the happy couple. See the cold so white and the skin so pink. See them playing squash, gotta keep their bodies supple. I was saying before about setting up a story and letting you fill in the backstory here. Yeah. Uh, Geraldine and John does this so completely well, and he's uh, he's gone and set up a story here, and then there's a twist. And he he's, he did this first on the Look Sharp album with the song uh, "Fools in Love." So you know he's setting up this thing about uh, you know fools in love. They do this and they do that, and they're losers and they're idiots and. I should know because I'm in love again. And whoa, didn't expect that coming. You think it's just this lonely guy who's sick of going to dinner parties where everyone's got a partner and he doesn't. He's just, you know, he's happy to be alone. But you get by the halfway through the song, this notion, in fact, that he's just envious. And here in Geraldine and John, we get uh, we get this set up about, you know, they're the perfect couple and they play tennis together and they're wearing matching clothes and they do all these things together. And then we get in the chorus... <laughs> All day long. <laughs> See the happy couple so inseparable, for better or for worse, they're married, but of course not to each other. And Ooh. I just think, what a brilliant storytelling twist! Yes. You should have been a short story writer. You know, it's just absolutely yeah. fantastic. Yes, the way. He says the word inseparable is pretty crafty. Yes, yes it is. Say it flat out. He, he mentions all five syllables that are, that are existing in that word. But, uh, you're absolutely... There, there's, a, there's, a, there's an art to that too, absolutely. Un, un, unbelievable. But yeah, these two are having an affair. And uh, it, it's an interesting ending to the story. Because I think even back in the late 70s, the divorce rate were, wasn't so high that people just somehow mustered through their marriages or worked it out. Whereas today, you know, people can leave in a heartbeat. And uh, so that, that's why it makes the song very timely, I guess. Mm. Or very, I guess, ho- I mean, maybe not so Hollywood ending, but you know, it's a bad it's a bad thing to be, you know, being adulterous 
and what what do you get out of it? I guess we'll let the listener listen to the lyrics and see what happens to Geraldine and John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and um, yeah, you can you can fill in all the little details. But if you were to make like a film out of this, you you know you'd fill in those details. But he's given you a really good description there, and uh, he. he you can picture them. You you have their faces in your in your mind. You know what they're wearing. You know how they look. And when things turn sour, as they do in the last verse, you can you can see the violence. You know what happens. He's just he he has these well picked lyrics. He's got this great story, which he's obviously thought about. This is uh, I admire songwriters who say, oh, this came to me in five minutes. But this is obviously something that he's sat down and he's crafted and he's thought a lot about and he's gone and removed one word here and there because it made all the difference. And it's Right. So he did it in seven minutes instead of five. People. Yeah, exactly. Just, um, but yeah, yeah I, I think if it's, that's the greatest detail we're going to go in all the songs, I wanted to say just collectively the, the single, uh, I mean, the layered harmonies on this album, they're very simple, mm. but they're very well placed. Um, you know, it's a total garage band kind of album put together, and it's brilliant. Uh, the band wore blue shirts when you hear the opening of the track. an unfortelling foreshadow of where his career is going to go mm. you know he just had fun with it for the time being and that's also when you talk about good storytelling uh, it's it's rad to hear him sing i guess someday my kids will ask me about the old days because of his optimistic intentions of having children someday mm. but i don't know that joe jackson has any children does he you know? i have not looked into, I mean, his i read his biography which funnily enough stopped at when he got the A&M contract, he basically said, this is what got me to my recording phase. You're not interested in the rest of it because it's just album tour, new musicians, album tour, nothing interesting, nothing to see, please keep moving. But what I think I want to do is give you a, a tale about how hard I had to work to get to this point. And actually, in just sort of making a note, you mentioned about the band wore blue shirts, that really does sort of keep uh, in, in mind with you know, how he was playing in these cabaret bands and the, these cover bands. So yeah, it was bands which, um, if I recall correctly, there was a band called Edward Bear and another band called Arms and Legs. And I'm pretty sure there was at least <laughs> one more in there. So this is you know, a tale told from a guy who has lived that life. And, and not just him, I'm sure like any of the big artists of the day, you know, before the... Uh, instant Warholian 15 minutes of instant fame on uh, American Idol and Australian Idol when you actually had to slog it out on the pub circuit or, or the cabaret circuit or whatever it was you know Joe wasn't unique in that line but this is his recollection of it and uh, yeah it's it's a bit of history it's a bit of foretelling you know just once again really cleverly crafted songs um, wonderful in uh, terms of imagination of the lyrics he's, he's the whole package he's got memorable tunes hummable hummable songs 
and very well-crafted lyrics, which um, is something that I completely appreciate and respect. Absolutely. And his perception on the limelight as soon as he got thrust into being a successful pop star is uh, I think the freshest song on the album has got to be Don't Want to Be Like That. but how do you know that what you know is true? And the Playboy centerfold leaves me cold, and that cause and that ain't because I'm a fag. So you Playboys can just go play with yourself. That's your style, because that's a drag. It's very, very good assessment on like, holy crap, I don't want to get involved in this game. This is too much for me. This is not my cup of tea. And then he throws some surf rock in there, you know, with uh, with Gary Gary right. Sanford. You know, I I'd imagine that in today's day and age of uh, Instagram and Twitter and vacuous uh, reality TV show stars showing about every little boring bit of minutia in their lives, that this song would be more relevant than ever. I'd be interested to know if he's gone and dug that out and puts that in his live set nowadays. Yeah, it's, it's well, I don't know. I mean, uh, he's got such a controversial F word in there, which is not the four-letter F word, but uh, a very taboo word regarding uh, sexual orientation. So right. that, that would be interesting to see if he would pull that out in the show. I, I wouldn't put it past him. And like I said, again, the reason why I love this album, Morris, is because there isn't anything throwaway about it. There's a change of pace, but it needs to happen. Otherwise, you're going to suffer from whiplash with, with all the bookends. So, and which I'm a complete fan of, you know, everything else. So, uh, do we talk about it's different for girls or am I dreaming? didn't really talk about it's different for girls and that is like the big single off the album that is the big single i just have to tell all the freaks out there that that was his highest charting uk single it made it to number five we have to talk about this song we have to we can't not talk about it um it made it to 101 
on the U.S. pop charts. Now, they recognize the top 40 for radio airplay, but even to break the top 100 is something of a nice, it's a nice thing to have happen. You know, yep. you want your show to be in the top 40, but the fact that it only went to 101 is such a travesty in the United States. It's absolutely super brilliant. I mean, and I guess this goes back to a, a place where you can't quite place this in top 40 in 1979. This actually, when I was listening to the chorus, I, I came to this this shocking revelation that when I first started writing music, I had two original rock bands before Best of My Love. Mm-hmm. But the very first song I ever wrote was when I worked at a radio station. I was a disc jockey in college. And the lyrics were very similar to It's Different for Girls. So quite technically speaking, this was the first song that influenced me to write a song out of nice. all the songs in the world. And I didn't even know it. It was subconscious. Um, and while it, it's his best charting single in the UK, in Australia, it was released as the second single after I'm the Man and made it to number 85. So is that as far as we got it? Because I heard it on the radio quite a fair bit. I can't imagine that it didn't crack the top 40, but then again, I'm old. What do I remember? No, and you know, here's the thing is that there are lots of songs that get radio airplay that don't break. Like James Blunt's a prime example. If anybody knows James Blunt, and I don't mean to use him as an example, not that he's a poor artist, but he has this, this song that most people think is annoying called You're Beautiful. You're beautiful. He had a follow-up to that from the same album to try to write on the single, and it got some radio airplay on the soft rock station out here in Los Angeles. But it didn't. It didn't take shape. Nobody would even know that it existed. But it was on the radio every day, you know, for like a week or so. So it's something that you know that if you've heard it quite a bit, it speaks to you. It grabs you. You understand that it's a quality song. It just for some strange reason didn't get swept up with everything else. Mm-hmm. And I was also surprised to find that kind of cute spelled with two K's mm-hmm. uh, made it to number 91 in Canada. And it was also released as a single didn't chart anywhere else. And then they just gave up on, on the man. That was the end of that. Let's go into uh, yeah. Be crazy. The, the production of that album. So this one was, uh, I don't, I don't know that it was a, I guess they would say it was a commercial failure in some respects and critics also bashed it being that that there was nothing new after Look Sharp, but this album is absolutely uh, essential to his catalog. No question. It's Different for Girls is a song, like a lot of other things that he's done, every time he goes out on the road, he will not play songs the same way as he recorded them beyond the, say, the initial tour. So I've heard him do this as a uh, piano ballad. Actually, what was really nice, on the Laughter and Lust tour, he had a um, a multi-instrumentalist and backup singer called Mindy Jostin, who um, sang it as a duet. So every time he sings, she said... And then she'd do, I can't believe it, you can't possibly mean it. So he'd sing the male parts, she'd sing the female parts, and it was done to great effect. So you did that more like as a piano bow, big world tour, and this is on the uh, VHS slash DVD live concert big world tour show. Uh, He played it with um, the emphasis on it being as a rhythmic acoustic guitar song, rather than sort of picking out those two notes an octave apart like like Gary Sanford does on uh, this version of it. And if I remember correctly, I have a feeling like there was a time where he did uh, It's Different for Girls and Is She Really Going Out for Him as a two-song medley. But when he got to Different for Girls, he played it in a minor key. So he, I think when he got to the chorus, it was still in a major key, but the uh, verses had uh, were played in a minor key and gave it something more of a sinister feel. So the song had a different lyrical tone yet again. Yeah, that, and uh, musically speaking, it's not a simple song either. The, David, the drummer, has got some sick 
ride hits, uh, mm. listen to the second chorus, the way he's tatinging, tatinging, and some kick drum beats, especially when they come out into the final chorus, is that he's doing some, some double bass hits. It's not very it's been simple playing, and that's another reason why I really love this song, musically speaking. Mm. Uh, just I was really shocked that we, we didn't kick off with talking about this song because this is the glaring spotlight song from the album for certain and to, to have nailed all the songs down to the wall and then get to this at the very end is, is quite funny well this we, is, we, we did get to it though so thankful thank god we got to it because i think <laughs> jackson would be very upset and i wouldn't blame him but this song is really the cream of the crop and i think with having seen the chart success in the uk with this that is that also helped steer the direction to where night and day came around so quick so while you do look at his early work and you see his fourth album as you call it 90 degrees, I call it 180, uh, doing a 180 degree turn uh, into a different direction and just being so up on the synth and, you know, the production of that album is like, wow, he has come so far so fast and he knows what the public wants to hear from him. And he found an image that suits his look as well, which is the, you know, the suave, classy, angry, soft Spiff. guy. Spiv. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Spiv didn't work out so well. No, no, not so much. And the album cover is pretty great, too. Uh, I, I would pay close, closer attention to what's inside his jacket than the look on his face. Right. Oh, actually, speaking of, have you seen the film clip for I'm the Man? I it's, have not. It's it's uh, it's on YouTube. It's um it basically has him as the spiv. So he's got that pencil thin mustache and he's wearing the hat and he's got like a you know a little cigarette that he sort of keeps uh, dragging on. But the whole film clip is just like one shot of um you know just him walking down some street in London, I'm presuming, and he's just sort of like singing into the camera as if he's you know about and you're waiting for him to say, "Oi, governor, would you like to get something out of my coat?" Uh-huh. Uh, so it, it, it's, a, it's a shame because he thought, you know, he, he had the spiv look. I thought, oh, it would have been interesting to see if he'd done something more with that. But really, the novelty is just that he's looking like the character on the front cover of the album. Search it out anyway. It's, um, it's Yeah, when you got to schlep an album together, you know, there's very little time to do. So it's nice to hear there's a music video. So it's film clip for all you Aussies and in the States. He, Morris is talking about a music video. So go look that up. Oh, sorry. What did I say? Film clip. I oh, right. Said a film yeah. clip. Yes, I'm, I'm just going to assume there is a music video for it back before MTV was launched. So yes, they were they were hip to stuff. Maybe. Good old Ants Records. What a really uh, classic album. Definitely play it on repeat. Mm. Uh, give at least two listens. It's only less than forty minutes long, and uh, if you can find it on LP too, that's just another treasure. Indeed. All right, so I, we've gone and discussed all that we can about that album, and that's big thumbs up from both Dave and myself out there. We're approaching towards the end of the show. Now, I'm going to quickly talk about this new segment that I alluded to at the start of the show, and it's basically this. I'm going to need you, the listeners, help with this. What I'd like to do every episode uh, from here on in uh, is basically any uh, any of you people who might be on the uh, Love That Album Facebook page or on the Feed My Ears Facebook page. If I'm, I'm sure a lot of you, are, in fact, I know a lot of you out there are musicians in bands and or, or maybe doing your own thing, and you would have recordings of uh, what you do. So I think it'd just be a nice little addition to the show. I'd like to be able to play you know, one song per show from a different member on the Facebook group. It doesn't matter. It can be a demo. 
I don't care what the genre is. It can be thrash metal. It can be electronic. It can be power pop. It can be psychedelic. It can be country. Whatever it is. If you're on the group and you're, you like to contribute dis- to discussions and you're a, a member of the group, send me something. Send me an MP3 to the uh, email address I mentioned before, rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au or send me a, a private Facebook message with the song and I'll, um, I'll play the song on the show at this point in the program. So this time around, I'm playing uh, a tune from a guy who um, is actually quite recently on the Facebook uh, page. His name is Zach Anthony. And when I, at first, I didn't recognize that name when he joined the group, but it struck me uh, after I looked at his profile that he is in fact, he was in a band or still is in a band called The Wellingtons, which my old band from many years ago called The Shambles, we did a, uh, a triple header. We did uh, The Shambles and The Wellingtons and a band called The Basics. So anyway, so The Wellingtons uh, are a, a power pop band and uh, they've been around for quite a number of years and uh, they're still a going concern. I'm hoping that my, um, my acapella group, The Ice Halos, will be doing a, a show with them in uh, two or three months. So it'll be lovely. But uh, anyway, so Zach got in contact and he um, joined the Love That Album Facebook page. And I thought, wow, you know, what's what's the Wellingtons up to? And he said, oh, well, have a listen. And he sent me some of the, their music. And so I'd like to play a track from uh, the Wellingtons album from, I think it's 2010, 2011. I can't quite remember. But the album's called Heading North for the Winter. And it's absolutely wonderful. So I'd, I'd like to um, play a track called Popped Balloons. And if you like what you hear from the Wellingtons, search them out, do a Google. Um, and I think it actually, I'm not sure if they have like a proper web page. I think it'll just go to their Facebook page. But if you contact them through that uh, and want to order a copy of their album, either as a download or as a physical CD, if you're old like me, then uh, I'm sure they'll be able to accommodate you. But anyway, have a listen to this track from the Wellingtons. It's called Popped Balloons from their album, Heading North for the Winter. And Dave and I will be back after the song just to wrap this puppy up. To find my break Maybe the star was the first mistake Well I just don't know what to do Just to keep the faith But maybe they were wrong and they were playing it safe Cause everywhere I look around People's dreams are falling down And I cannot fight through my lavation yeah. Nothing ever comes to you So I can't mistake the blue But I won't say anything cause I might regret it soon I'm not regretting to 
And we're back. So hope you dug that song from uh, the Wellingtons and want to follow up. And once again, if you're a uh, singer, performer in a band and you have, once again, it can be demo, it can be a properly professional recorded work, however you choose, if you want to have it played on the podcast, I'd love to play it on the podcast because I just think it makes things that much more interesting for the show. So um, please send it to me either as a, a private message on the Facebook group or as um, an email, rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. I look forward to hearing from you uh, because basically if you don't, then this new segment ends with this month and that'd be a big, big shame. It'd be a drag. It'd be a drag, man. Do <laughs> um, you know? Yes. Oh, yeah, drag. You know. So um, anyway, uh, that ends this show. Uh I had a pleasurable time with you, Morris. I really uh, am gr- grateful for you to have me on your show and we can talk about an album and definitely would love to do it again. I'd like to thank everybody out there listening for the first time, the second time, or the 14th, or those devout listeners to the show, and happy to be a part of your catalog. What a way you, to kick off. Well, as far as I'm concerned, I don't want you to be a stranger. I'd love to have you come back sometime this year because uh, it's been uh, an absolute honor and pleasure to have uh, to have you on the program and as i said before i've always enjoyed your work on uh, all-time top 10 so hopefully uh, we'll have you back sooner rather than later and uh, maybe with uh, we can convince ben eisen to make it a menage a trois for the next uh, for the next time we'll see how we do with that so that sounds like- <clears throat> so as to uh, love that album episode 72 out in february uh i've had contact with the uh, two gentlemen who run the excellent film discussion podcast called Stinking Paws. That's P-A-U-S-E. And that is supposed to be a pun on the uh, Planet of the Apes reference. Get your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. Uh, So um, Scott and Charlie have uh, agreed to uh, grace my show with uh, their presence. I'm looking forward to that immensely. If uh, you've not heard the Stinking Paws podcast, I urge you to do so. They're a lot of fun. And um, they're actually about to uh, release a a program with their 100th film review. And they'll be talking about The Godfather. I look forward to uh, hearing what they have to say about that. But they're coming on to love that album in, uh, in February. And uh, we're going to discuss, we're going to go, another great songwriter. Um, I promise to be doing a lot more rock, or rock, as we like to say on the program this year. But I'm going back to the singer-songwriter thing because um, it was something that uh, they were very quite enamored with the idea of doing. So we're going to be covering Randy Newman's album, Sail Away. Um, and Randy Newman is, we, we were talking before about you know, great lyricists, and Randy Newman is certainly, in my mind anyway, one of the uh, sharpest, wittiest lyricists of the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years. He could be biting and cutting, and yet he can be all at once very tender. And um, it, it's hard to reconcile the, the sharp and sarcastic Randy Newman with the guy who's written all those wonderful songs for the Pixar films. But there you go. He was also doing some of that sort of stuff even back when he was being uh, sharp and cutting. So uh, tune in uh, in February for uh, episode 72 to hear us talk about Randy Newman's Sail Away. I'm not quite sure what Eric's compilation series episode is going to be yet, but I'm sure it'll be something fine. So keep your eye on the Facebook page uh, for when that will be available, probably mid-February. 
so there you go i think we've covered everything all the contact details uh and once again dave it's been absolute pleasure having you on the program and look forward to doing it again sometime shortly in the year thank you kind sir all right we're going to be uh, heading out and uh we'll see you again in a few weeks for next episode of love that album all the best cheers it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.